If someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit NoFearDentist.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, good to see you. Good to be here, man. On the pod today, we're going to talk about Mike Bloomberg's foreign policy record. We've talked a lot about the other candidates. Let's dig into Mike's record. We're going to talk about presidential candidate foreign policy trivia and how big a deal it is. The humanitarian crisis in northwest Syria, which is a very big deal. The latest on the coronavirus and why some right-wingers are spreading conspiracy theories. Why the Koch brothers are supporting foreign policy think tanks that we like, which is a weird feeling. Mm. News from Munich. Uh, quick headlines about Afghanistan, Iran, John Bolton. And then, Ben, you did the interview today. What did you guys talk about? So I talked to Christiana Figueres, who was the lead UN kind of architect of the Paris Agreement. She was responsible for hurting all the cats. Um, she had a, a, it's a great interview. She really lays out, you know, what the stakes are on climate, uh, what worked in getting the Paris Agreement done, what needs to happen in the next year, um, what she thinks of the democratic plans. Uh, interestingly, though, she started the interview, she was just in Antarctica, where it was 70 degrees, mm, which balmy. is the same as here in L.A. Yeah, as she weird. pointed out, the same weather as Hawaii. And and let's just say, I, I want to spoil it, uh, but that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ice yeah. melts when yeah, it's uh, yeah, yeah. 40 degrees not above good. freezing. Not, Great. Not good. Well, I look forward to that. Our first topic is going to be uh, Mike Bloomberg's foreign policy because he's in the first debate, which will air on Wednesday evening, I believe, or Thursday evening, uh, the day after this episode comes out. Then we'll have the Nevada caucus results. Uh, ben, that night wasn't quite the Iowa caucus results night or New Hampshire in my memory in terms of importance, but it was a really fun one because it was this dramatic reversal yeah. uh, after the Nevada caucus. Swing of emotions. Yeah, where everyone thought Hillary Clinton had won, and then our delegate guy, Jeff Berman, Genius. figured out that, in fact, Obama had won more delegates than Hillary Clinton coming out of it. So we did this dramatic conference call with all these reporters where yeah. they basically reversed all their stories in the course of this half-hour conference And we, you were in headquarters, right? Yeah, At that yeah. point, you were back from Iowa. We cheering. And, and so it was just kind of weird string of emotions where it's like, oh, we didn't quite win. Everybody's kind of sad. And then it's like, nope, we actually won. <laughs> you know? because, and, and so people understand it's because in a caucus, you award delegates based on congressional districts. And we had so out-organized Hillary in the kind of rural parts yeah. of the state that we won more delegates even though we didn't win the raw vote. Um, and so we snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. That was that was a good feeling. Yeah, pissed off the Hillary people. At, you know what? Delegate math, caucus math, yeah, yeah. Get, uh, electoral college. Get ready for it. Yeah. All of it is weird and terrible. Okay, let's go uh, dig into Mike Bloomberg's foreign policy. Yes. So let's start with his record uh, because I think that's probably easier than the platform even. So Bloomberg has done a ton of great work uh, combating climate change, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. He's uh, the leader of a coalition that's been pushing major cities to push for climate action. He's donated a ton of money in his personal capacity. He's done work at the UN. He's partnered with uh, Obama and, and 
the business community. So tons of good stuff on climate. Um, he's done some work with the World Health Organization on uh, non-communicable diseases. Uh, and that is like literally all that is listed on his website under yeah. foreign policy. So we'll get to the platform later. So those are the positive uh, good side of the ledger. Some negatives. Here we go. Bloomberg supported the war in Iraq uh, and endorsed George W. Bush's reelection back in 2004. Seems like a problem. Uh, he opposed the Iran nuclear deal, but more recently has said he opposed Trump's decision to withdraw from it and that he would get back into the Iran deal without preconditions. So a slightly confused record on that. He's been very close historically with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. He defended Israel's conduct uh, in the 2014 war in Gaza, when most of the international community thought that the use of force was disproportionate. He's defended the Israeli blockade of the Gaza Strip. Uh, he said he would never impose conditions on U.S. military aid to Israel. His comment about Trump's uh, recently released Middle East peace plan was basically to praise it for saying yeah. that it affirmed a negotiated two-state solution, even though the Jared Kushner-Trump plan absolutely did not do that. Um, by the way, I'm drawing a lot of this research from uh, good reporting by friends of the pod, Peter Beinart and uh, Mehdi Hassan. So check out their pieces if you want more info. Um, Beinart also points out to Bloomberg's great credit, he refused to join uh, politicians that tried to shut down academics who were supporting uh, boycotting Israel. Bloomberg said, quote, if you want to go to a university where the government decides what kinds of subjects are fit for discussion, I suggest you apply to a school in North Korea, mm. which is kind of a great uh, defense of academic freedom. Yeah. So uh, more negative things. Uh, the Bloomberg administration oversaw this massive surveillance program of Muslims in New York. Ben, I felt some guilt rereading all the reporting on that from the time because it happened as like a joint CIA NYPD program during the Obama administration yeah. that's pretty clearly unconstitutional, pretty clearly racial profiling. It produced no actionable intelligence, but we probably should have denounced it from the White House and we just didn't comment for some reason. Um, Mehdi also points out that Bloomberg refused to succumb to the hysteria around the so-called Ground Zero mosque. Remember, yeah. whenever that was, 2009. Republicans, Fox News, conservative media melted down over this Islamic center near Ground Zero, and Bloomberg actually delivered this powerful defense of, of Muslims, of tolerance, of American values, and he's criticized the Muslim ban. Um, when it comes to China, Bloomberg said uh, Xi Jinping is no dictator, which would probably come as a surprise to yeah. 1.3 billion <laughs> yeah. Chinese people. Um, and he's been accused of shutting down critical reporting about China uh, at Bloomberg News. So, Ben... Uh, you know, I know I just ticked through a shitload of stuff there, yeah. but, I, you know, that record is mixed to troubling. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to open by just saying, in part because I just got the shit scared out of me in this climate interview, um, that we should kind of begin all these conversations with, like, whoever the nominee is. Like, I'm going to support that nominee. And, 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 and I'll put my cards on the table here. Like, Mike Bloomberg would not be my first choice uh, of everybody who's run. But... He's been very good on climate, <laughs> and yeah, and frankly, really we need a new president uh, so that the world has a fighting chance. Um, so uh, any one of the Democrats running would be night and day on climate change, and 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 on this Bloomberg deserves credit. Not only has he said the right things, he's he's funded a lot of efforts yep. to take coal plants offline and to try to trans transition our economy. So I think you give the the most credit um, for what he's done on climate, and and he would be. You know, I think a very good climate president. Um, I do have you know serious concerns <laughs> with some other aspects of his foreign policy. Um, I just highlight a couple: the, the Iran deal. You know, he didn't support it, but he also kind of was dripping with you know kind of condescension and and uh, you know so I, I would say arguments that 
you know, echoed some of the more erroneous charges mm-hmm. against the deal. Like he said, you know, President Obama was was lying when he said there was a permanent prohibition on Iran getting nuclear weapon. <laughs> That's the in the text of the deal, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and look, I, I mean, I, I, the, I, he uniformly has kind of taken the Israeli government's view on a set of issues, um, including this one, including the Palestinian issues. So I'd be, you know, uh, that's obviously not <laughs> the the not approach that that, yeah. that I uh, uh, supported in government, um, and, and I think it, it represents a kind of more conventional view of um, Middle Eastern conflicts, be it Israeli, Palestinian, or Iran. Yeah. Um, then the other thing that that I think is concerning, and I want to hear more from him on. I mean, he I think he has time to to lay this out in debates and stuff. Is on questions around you know democracy and authoritarianism. We, mm-hmm. We've talked a lot about this. Um, on this podcast, but essentially, you know, this is a, the mega trend in the world. And, and I think on that comment that you said about, you know, Xi Jinping's not a dictator, um, he, he's been pretty cagey on things related to, say, Hong Kong. You're right. When he was, um, you know, when we were in office, there was a case where a Bloomberg reporter reported on corruption uh, in the Chinese government. Um, and uh, the Chinese complained and Bloomberg knew and I think threatened Bloomberg, not just the, the news organization, but the terminal business, right? Mm-hmm. That's how Mike Bloomberg makes a lot of his money. Uh, and a lot of that is in China. They kind of threatened that business, kind of like what we saw at the NBA. And, you know, they kind of hemmed and hawed. That reporter ultimately ended up leaving Bloomberg and going to the Times. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the finest hour either in terms of kind of standing up for, for values. So, and look, I mean, you know, he might say, well, it's a business. Um, I would say, you know, you got to draw a line somewhere, but certainly as president you do. So I'd like to hear him articulate, in, you know, what, what his approach would be to, mm-hmm. to democracy and, and tr- trying to support democracy around the world. Obviously, he got in a little hot water in New York by changing the law to let himself have a third term. Yeah, uh, you'll have noticed that. And, and literally, the <laughs> law said Mike Bloomberg can get a third term, but nobody else can after Mike Bloomberg. So it was not the most democratic process. So look, I, it's a mixed bag. Again, I want to give him credit on climate. Hugely important figure in global efforts to fight climate change already. I think on some of these other issues, he's been, you know, in the 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 center right end of the spectrum for a Democrat uh, on things like Iran, Israel, Palestinians, and, and some of these issues around democracy. So, you know, let's let's see what he says. I'm, on a lot of these other issues, he's, let's say, updated his positions yep. to be somewhat more progressive. I think if he does, I hope he does that. I mean, that the, we should allow for some evolution here. Yeah. I mean, it, like the record to me, it's like if the set of Morning Joe had a foreign policy, it would be Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, and yeah. then there's some instances of business uh, interest trumping, you know, what you'd think of as a foreign policy interest in the United States, which I guess isn't surprising, but you're right. It's something we should take note it's of. It's not surprising. And, and now he's running for a different office than mayor of New York. And let's see if he fleshes out these positions. And again, I, I like, let's, let's give him a chance to do that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if he does, like, we'll come back and, you know, uh, give him credit. If he doesn't, yep. you know, the record, you know, I think if you're looking for a more progressive foreign policy, just about anybody else in the race, you know, would would probably answer that mail again, with the very notable and important exception of, of climate, where he's been a leader. Yeah. So let's talk about Bloomberg's platform for a bit. So, I, as I mentioned, you know, his personal website is very thin on foreign policy. But the New York Times sent the Bloomberg campaign a questionnaire about the foreign policy platform going forward. And so I'll just flag some things that seemed either not notable or notable, but worth mentioning. So, 
you know, the answer is uh, about when he'd use military force were pretty standard. He'd defend the U.S. from attack. He's for, uh, you know, potential humanitarian intervention, but he opposes using military force or covert action for regime change. So that's good. Uh, on Iran, he said he would reenter the Iran deal with no preconditions. Which, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and further than some of the other candidates like yeah. Cory Booker, I think Michael yeah. Bennett uh, were not there. So yeah. good. Um, troublingly, the campaign bought the Trump administration's line that the Soleimani strike was legal and imminence-based and justifiable. We'll talk about that later, but yeah. that's been fully walked back uh, and was sort of self-evident. Yeah, even the Trump administration has moved away from that law. <laughs> yeah. you know. uh, on North Korea, he said uh, Mike Bloomberg would not continue the leader-to-leader diplomacy with Kim Jong-un, but uh, he also wouldn't continue to ratchet down sanctions. But the rest of the approach is sort of standard yeah, Obama, Clinton, basic, yeah. you know, a bunch of things that haven't worked today, yeah. let's be honest. Uh, he said he would leave a residual force of around 3,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan to counterterrorism. Uh, we talked about the pro-Israel policies. Um, Russia, China, NATO, cybersecurity seemed fairly standard or at least not that detailed. Yeah. Anything jump out at you? No, you're right. I think you summed it up well in that he's basically taken, you know, pretty conventional set of positions. And look, the Iran deal evolution is interesting because, again, he was a pretty notable skeptic of the Iran deal um, at a time, you know, in 2015 where he was already kind of pivoting to being more of a national democratic figure. But what's interesting is he he did criticize Trump for pulling out of the Iran deal. Um, So, uh, you know, he's in that category of people like, I guess, Mattis, who had all kinds of criticisms of the deal when it was reached, but then yep. uh, came around to thinking, well, actually, maybe this is better than the alternative. So, um, you know, whether that was for political expedience or whether that was a na- an actual evolution, I'm not sure. Um, but like you said, like it, it feels like a guy who has some areas where he's developed views. And again, issues related to Israel, one area, issues related to climate, issues related to kind of global trade in which he's probably pretty far to the right of, of Bernie. Um, but then a lot of these other issues, it's kind of the conventional, like what, you know, what you would expect a kind of centrist to say about Russia or mm-hmm. NATO or what have you. Yeah. Um, a couple other 2020 candidates were in the news uh, this week because of foreign policy, uh, much to their chagrin. So at a candidate forum in Las Vegas last week, Democratic presidential candidates Tom Steyer and Amy Klobuchar uh, were asked to name the president of Mexico and could not. Uh, only Mayor Pete was able to remember the name Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador when asked. Um, ben, this reminded me of the uh, 2000 <laughs> presidential campaign when a Boston TV station asked George W. Bush to name the leaders of Chechnya, Taiwan, India, and Pakistan, and he went one for four, which would get you to the majors, yeah. but uh, he could only remember Taiwan. It also reminded me of a period back in 2006 when Congressional Quarterly asked a bunch of members of Congress, including the incoming Democratic nominee to be chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, whether al-Qaeda was Sunni or Shia and which sect dominated Hezbollah. So, you know, if we're being honest here, when I read the story and I paused to test myself to see if I remember the name of the president uh, of Mexico, the first name that came to mind was Enrique Peña Nieto. Uh, I was a former president, but, you know, I'm bad with names and I'm not running for fucking president. So I guess I failed, too. Um, But I guess I personally find the ignorance about uh, the Sunni al-Qaeda question more surprising we're not asking members of Congress to trace uh, the, the Sunni-Shia split back to the death of Muhammad in 632, but maybe know the bare minimum about the people who attacked us on 9-11. Ben, where do you land on these kinds of questions? Are these unfair trivia? Is this a problematic knowledge gap? Like, No. Well, first of all, 
uh, can we pour one out for the Amy Klobuchar staffer <laughs> who prepped her for the interview? Yeah, it's, um, yeah that's probably uh, tough. How'd you like to see Amy, uh, Amy taking off the microphone at the end of the interview and walking towards you? Um, must have been a harrowing moment. Um, but uh, and I posit that I, I really like Amy. Um, but um, the this I think matters. Um, and, and I I didn't see it in, totally as an indictment of, of Amy and Steyer, because frankly, probably a bunch of these candidates. But to me, it's more of an indictment of like, how have we gone a year of this campaign and never talked about the president of Mexico? Yeah. I mean, because it's Mexico. This is a, like arguably as important a country in the United States as any other. Totally. And, you know, Lopez Obrador, goes by AMLO, uh, his, his initials, is a big figure in Mexico. Like he's been around for a while. He's a left wing populist. And, and, and you know, counter narcotics, the border issues that are really important to the United States matter. The reason why I think this was a fair question I, I most of the time I don't like if, if somebody sat down and was like name the prime minister of Pakistan like that's just gotcha right but this is like they're starting to compete for the votes of Mexican Americans you know and in in a context of an election where their family members might be getting deported back to this country that is led by <laughs> Lopez Obrador so I do think for that community you know uh, the, the the idea that once this election is moving to Nevada and moving to more diverse states that have large populations of, of Mexican Americans uh, in large and frankly even states you know put aside the 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 ethnic background states that are closer to the border that have a lot of you know trade or mm-hmm. movement of people of Mexico I, I do think it, it matters and it's kind of fair and I see it again as somewhat less of an indictment of of them although credit to Pete for getting it right uh, but more just like a, how have we not had a question in a debate about the country of Mexico, right? Like, like it just it points to how much issues that are really important. Like we talk endlessly about the border and immigration, and we never talk about Mexico. You know? Um, yeah. The most recent ABC uh, presidential debate was like three nearly identical questions about whether the candidates would have killed Soleimani. Yeah. Like they couldn't mix it up a little bit. Well, and and I I would argue that that Mexico is more important. To America than Iran, you know, um, certainly on an economic level. Yeah, in terms of the amount of trade, volume of trade, the border, counter narcotics, uh, things that affect the lives of Americans. You know, I mean, Americans are affected in Iraq. You know, if Qasem Soleimani had militias that threatened them, but millions of Americans are affected by the Mexico relationship every day. It, it, it shows how our foreign policy is kind of distorted to elevate things like, you know, assassinating a guy and not to address pretty basic things like how are we dealing with our, totally. our neighbor. Th- there's like a mind share to importance mismatch on yeah. so many foreign policy questions. Like the amount of time that people spend poring over like Middle East peace process maps yeah. compared to U.S.-Mexico relations or yeah. the Western Hemisphere generally is completely absurd. It's absurd. And, and, I, and I don't know what will change it. Um, and frankly, one of the things that might change it is like, you know, these these candidates having to get out and 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 talk to different outlets and outlets that care about these issues and raise them right i mean these candidates i'm sure like i care a lot about cuba like they're not being asked about cuba as i've said on this podcast amy is actually very good on cuba but when they go to florida they'll be asked about it you know and they'll be asked about venezuela right and so one of the good things i think that happens in a presidential campaign is as you go around the country you start to find you know people in different states who actually care about different issues including foreign policy issues yeah uh, another big issue I'd like to hear them asked about is uh, Syria, specifically what's happening in Idlib province right yeah. now. So there are estimates of up to a million Syrians getting just 
push towards the Turkish border as the Syrian government troops begin to retake Idlib province in northwest Syria. Uh, the majority of the people fleeing are children, like well, over half uh, the majority of the adults are women. Many of them, if not most of them, are sleeping outside in tents in below freezing weather. Uh, international aid organizations are warning that this could turn into the worst humanitarian crisis of the entire Syrian war. So let that sink in for a second. Um, the people who can't leave are caught in the middle of fighting between uh, basically former al-Qaeda affiliate fighters and Syrian ground troops who are being backed up by indiscriminate Russian airstrikes. On top of that, you have tensions escalating between Turkish-backed forces in the region and those same Syrian troops. And there's also reportedly like Le- Lebanese Hezbollah and other Shia militia groups in the mix. Um, the U.S. And, and the whole world basically is trying to call for a ceasefire at the U.N., but the Russians have stopped all meaningful action at the U.N. Security Council. Uh, there are more than three and a half million Syrian refugees living in Turkey right now, and the Turks just refuse to take any more, so they're not going to let them cross the border. In 2018, Turkey and Russia announced that Idlib would be a de-escalation zone, but that uh, agreement has fallen apart. The Turkish delegation just went to Moscow on Monday for some talks. They're pressing for a ceasefire. Trump has called for a ceasefire, but so far the obsequious obsequiousness with Putin has not gotten that uh, in return. So, Ben, like, this is about as bad as it gets. Um, I'm not sure what we can do about it besides donate to relief organizations like the IRC and others uh, and just, you know, hope something breaks at the the UN. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we completely failed to avert the humanitarian catastrophe in Syria um, and President Obama didn't intervene, and you know uh, that will be debated for 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 you know for a long time. Um, I, I would say, you know, when you have a bad situation, th- th- it can always get worse. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the Middle East, and mm-hmm. and I I do think a normal administration, even one that is not intervening militarily, um, would be doing much more to try yes. to spotlight this, to try to make it harder for the Russians to do this, to try to get humanitarian assistance to people in need, and to try to take in Syrian refugees. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think th- what Trump is doing is actually is worse than what you would expect any normal American administration to do, because he's basically, by kind of pulling out or pulling back from playing a role in Syria, uh, as he did a few months ago, by kind of greenlighting Putin and Erdogan to yep. just kind of figure this out between the two of them. Those are two pretty callous, amoral guys, you know, who even though the Turks say the right things about this sometimes, like they're not really putting any skin in the game. You know, it, it just shows you what happens when there's not. I mean, look, I'll betray myself and commit an Amy Klobuchar, Tom Steyer type. I don't even think I could name Who's our UN ambassador? Isn't wasn't the wife of the uh, the, the coal the magnet? Coal the, person, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Samantha Power would be like flipping over tables at the Security Council yeah. and at least getting attention on this, at least making this more difficult for the Russians. So you know that that's what's disappointing is to see. Like, I don't claim that we would have solved this problem. We we couldn't solve Syria, but we would have been doing more and trying to help more people, trying to take in more people, and trying to raise the diplomatic cost for Russia. And frankly, by this point, you know, the fact that w- there have not really been any meaningful negotiations about how to end the Syrian civil war, um, it, it does feel like we're kind of mailing it in here, you know. Yeah, it's incredibly daunting. I mean, the U.S. could use our intelligence capabilities to highlight what's happening, raise funds for humanitarian relief. There's just a lot of things that should be happening. Yeah. 
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Okay, let's do a, a roundup of the latest coronavirus news with a special appearance by one of the Senate's worst people, hmm. Tom Cotton. Uh, so let's Noted right-wing intellectual. Yes, yeah. let's start with uh, the stats. So the latest outbreak stats uh, released by China as of Tuesday are... 72,436 cases and nearly 2,000 dead. So uh, more shocking to me is an estimated 760 million people in China are subject to some sort of limit on their activity. Um, The restrictions vary place by place, but that number includes 150 million people that face restrictions on how often they can leave their homes. So you have businesses closed, shopping is restricted, you can't get groceries. Um, In a lot of these cases, the government of China can monitor where people are based on cell phone tracking so that, you know, in some instances that's useful. They can say, hey, you were in this town where there's a bad outbreak, get tested, but it's also creepy. Creepy. Um, We're starting to see some serious economic impact. Apple warned it was cutting uh, sales expectations because the virus had impacted the supply of their products when factories were closed and demand because they had to close 42 Apple stores, all of them in China. Uh, The South Korean president warned of an emergency economic situation because of how much uh, the Korea-China trade is being impacted. Japan announced on Monday that its economy had shrunk 6.3% last quarter due to other things, a typhoon, some other problems. But that was before the virus hit. And so now they're poised to fall into a, a recession, recession, right, yeah. if the economy shrinks this quarter. And then, you know, I've heard some economists estimate a 3% drop in China's GDP yeah. because of this yeah. virus. So that is massive economic impact. So we, you know, uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember, and we said, like, hey, it's strange that the markets aren't pricing this mm-hmm. in. <laughs> it feels yeah. like this. I, I think this is a huge thing to watch. Um, I mean, Apple's a bit of a bellwether here because they're like the biggest company in the world, right? And they're essentially saying our our profit margins, our revenues are going to go way down from what we expected because our supply chains are disrupted because factories are literally closed in China and because they had to shut down every Apple store in China for a period of time. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, and that's an enormous amount of revenue and that's just Apple. So, so the impact this is going to have on American companies many of whom sell goods in China or dependent on a supply chain from China. I just don't think we're pricing this in um, with an economy that had already showed some signs of slowing down. So this is playing out over here as kind of separate from everything else. But I think the coronavirus, if it sticks with us here, you know, really could be looking at risking the global economy, risking potential recession. 
I, I think people just need to, to take you know more time to, to, to factor this in because um, you're talking about the second largest economy in the world, a country of 1.3 billion people that is kind of partially offline. And you're already seeing it drag South Korea and Japan down. Mm-hmm. And, and we're very interconnected with China, too. I, I think this is coming here. Yeah, I mean, they, I think they just delayed or are about to delay the Communist Party meeting that's upcoming. So it's like literally yeah. everything is shutting down yeah. in the country. And meanwhile, Trump is like praising Xi on Twitter, saying he's doing a great job. I mean, literally, Trump sounded like an editorial writer for like the China People's Fucking Daily, you know? When Xi Jinping and the Chinese government helped create some of this mess yeah. because they didn't tell the truth they to people. They, didn't, they lied about it. They tried to cover it up. They didn't level with people. That made the outbreak that much worse. That risked the pandemic. And we've got a president of the United States who, instead of trying to deal with that, is, is like like trying to flatter Xi on Twitter. Um, may, maybe because he's worried about these economic statistics. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny. For all that we debate the Democratic candidates, what, what really might determine the election is... Where, where you know economic indicators and global events are around the election, and this is one that is not you know uh, right now looking like it's going to be positive. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and let me talk about uh, somebody who has not been helping, uh, Senator Tom Cotton. So on Sunday, uh, Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, went on Fox News and suggested again that the coronavirus may have originated in a biochemical lab in Wuhan, China, uh, which is the city of the center of the outbreak. He did this sort of classic rumor mongering tactic by saying, I have no evidence that this was, you know, a virus they created maybe for military purposes. I'm just asking questions, right? Isn't it interesting that this all happened where there's a secret bio lab, which is pretty gross. Um, This rumor, I guess, is being trafficked by Steve Bannon and other right wing media people. Uh, I'm no epidemiologist, but real scientists uh, quoted in, in real newspapers studying the disease point out that it's a lot like SARS and other diseases that come from bats. And it's probably not yeah. the best bioweapon since it seems to mostly kill old and already sick people. So in China, not very useful against the troops. Yeah, right. Yeah. In China. So um, the conspiracy is also being spread by this Chinese uh, fugitive billionaire who hates Xi Jinping, their big opponents, who is the latest guy to bankroll Steve Bannon's nonsense. By the way, that's the key to Bannon's success, right? Like before it was yeah. the Mercers. Now it's this new guy. It's all, there's always a billionaire backing his demagoguery. Um, but, you know, what Cotton is doing here has some weird echoes in history. Like it's well documented that the Soviet Union planted the rumor that the CIA invented AIDS. And that info operation was so successful that it got picked up in U.S. media outlets. Um, of course, the horrifying truth that the, the Tuskegee experiments where hundreds of black men were uh, allowed to suffer from syphilis without being treated makes it a lot more believable. But, you know, Cotton's response is basically, you know, what's wrong with asking questions? But I, I think he knows what he's doing here. And you could also see how this would make things worse because it does seem to me to be harder to uh, marshal an international response to a disease, to a pandemic, if it's labeled Chinese bioweapon versus scary virus that just emerged. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the conspiracy theory is crazy. The the Chinese are going to invent a bioweapon that is basically like, uh, you know, flu-like symptoms that can kill you. That, as you point out, scientists say, very common for jumping from animals to people and and release it in their own <laughs> city to kill their own people. But let's just talk about Tom Cotton for a moment here. Um, I mean, we're talking about somebody like that that exploded onto the stage in 2015 when he had the bright idea to write a letter that he somehow got 47 other Republican senators to sign that he sent to the supreme leader of Iran at the height of the Iran deal negotiations in which he warned the Ayatollah not to make a deal with Barack Obama. 
So essentially made common cause, American hardliner with the Iranian hardliner against the national interests of the United States. And at the time, this guy is held up as some kind of new young leader in the Republican Party, an intellectual in the Republican Party, a guy who went to Harvard that, that everybody should keep a watch on. Maybe he's going to be president someday. This guy sounds like a fucking commenter on a 4chan chain. Yeah. You know, this guy, like, what, what he, he logs on to, to 8chan or whatever, hate-filled conspiracy theory website he's on in the darkness of night as he's, like, in a room that is lit only by his computer screen. Yeah, like and the he's Steve in, Bannon yeah, podcast. And he's in some thread you know with some dudes who are like clearly this is a bioweapon and then he feels the need to unburden himself of this conspiracy theory on Fox News while people are dying and people are quarantined in cruise ships and the global economy is potentially tanking and, and all he sees is some opportunity to score another cheap ideological point against China by planting a conspiracy theory in the minds of all Fox News viewers while Steve Bannon gets paid this is is what qualifies as the intellectual leader of the Republican Party in yeah. Donald Trump's America. This fucking guy. Our next president. Yes. Tom our Cotton. Next, yeah, Tom Cotton point. versus Don Jr. primary. I mean, at, at what point are people going to just stand up and be like, you know what? Like, the Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton. How many times do you have to hear that there's some like young Republican that we should take seriously that, that, that ends up being a lunatic, a conspiracy theorist, or someone without any backbone? Because that's what this collection of people have presented themselves to us as. And unless we want to live in a country that is governed by like a 4chan thread, like we're going to have to make some different decisions at the ballot box. Yeah. Tom. Sorry, it's been a while. No, no, no. T- Tom <laughs> Cotton, also known for being uh, just cruel for fun. Yeah. Where he, he held up uh, an Obama appointee to oh. punish Obama oh, who yeah. passed away in the process. Yeah, Cassandra uh, Butts, a, yeah. A, a, a wonderful woman, a close friend of Barack Obama's, nominated to be an ambassador. He held her up for two years, including after she got a serious illness, and she passed away while Tom Cotton had a hold on her. And he admitted, acknowledged, and said publicly that he only did it really to stick it to Obama. That's yeah. who we're talking about. Yeah, not a good guy. <sighs> okay. Okay. Let's talk about the Koch brothers. Oh, some other some great guys. So <laughs> friends of the pod. Politico had a story last week uh, by a friend of the pod, Nahal Tusi, about how Charles Koch of the infamous Koch brothers is doling out huge amounts of money to foreign policy think tanks. She talked about $10 million that's going to four places. The Atlantic Council, the Center for the National Interests, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and the Rand Corporation. Uh, Charles Koch's goal is to promote, quote, uh, voices of military restraint. Uh, and tests widely held assumptions about the use of military force. Specifically, the Atlantic Council is going to get $4.5 million to support scholars and activities that promote a better balance of the use of diplomacy and international alliances. Um, I don't know everything about all these organizations, but like the Chicago Council on Global Affairs is a good one. It's run by Ivo Dalder, who was Obama's U.S. ambassador to NATO for four years. Good guy. Ben, I'm struggling with this one because, you know, some good organizations, a good goal— but the Cokes have done incalculable damage to our country and our national security. Uh, and it's just generally gross to know how easy it is for big money to distort everything, including foreign policy. So I don't know what to make of this. Yeah, well, there's a theme here. <laughs> we started with Bloomberg, right? Um, look, uh, they, for a long time, uh, the Cokes have been moving in this direction. You know, they're, they're basically libertarian. Um, there's been this kind of strange alliance between libertarians and liberals uh, and progressives around the use of military force. Cato Institute, which they fund, supported the Iran deal. Um, They opposed the kind of forever war. The Quincy Institute that we talked about is funded basically by the 
this Koch brother yeah. and George Soros. Half right? a million. From, yeah. Uh, so, um, so to me, look, I, I rather they be funding this than, you know, funding anti climate change, you know, climate denial research. Fair. Um, What's interesting to me about this is so Quincy was set up, as we talked about, to be like a new kind of think tank that promotes restraint and the use of military force and alliances. What they're doing here is they're they're funding much more traditional think tanks, Atlantic Council, Rand Corporation, that have been around a while. And I think what they're trying to do is use that money to to move those think tanks in a different direction. So it's an interesting way yeah. to do it. Like one way is you set up a new think tank, Quincy. Another way is you know, some think tanks that, you know, probably in the past got a lot of money from, you know, ran from the U.S. government, um, you know, Atlantic Council from, you know, a lot of you know, defense contractors probably. Um, they're trying to change the funding equation of these think tanks. I, I, it's positive. Yeah, I, I, like, I think, like, I think like it, it's a good, I, I, but I mean, I, I wish there wasn't the name Coke attached I know. to it. I mean, it, it's like my, my kids like to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art when we're in New York City and they have those fountains in front. Um, and David Koch's name is on them. Yeah. And you're like, well, they like the fountains, yeah. but it, do we have to look at the name? You know, They took down the Sackler's name, the opioid uh, peddlers. Yeah, that one had to come down. So hopefully if you take climate change seriously, you'd have to take the Koch one down. But but what I will say is what, what this points to that is more interesting than just the Koch brothers is this trend where libertarian Republicans are joining with progressive Democrats. And, and that is a very welcome thing. That is how that Tim Kaine bill uh, just passed the Senate. Uh, around demanding authorization for any war with Iran. Mm-hmm. It, it's in part how we got the Yemen war powers through that tried to revoke support or did, but Trump vetoed it for the Saudi war in Yemen. So this this um, this alliance between libertarian Republicans and progressive Democrats really does have the capacity to remake the consensus around the use of force in this country. I, I would take it very seriously. And, and frankly, as, as much as you don't like taking money from uh, a Koch brother, it, the, the broader trend is a very welcome development. Yeah, net-net, probably good. It's just still so weird to me. You'd be like, here's $2 million for your think tank. Uh, hire these people to study this thing, to put out this kind of papers, move on. You know, and what I'll never get over, Tommy, is that like $10 million or whatever it is for these guys like, is like you and me giving... 50 bucks. Nothing. Uh, it's nothing. You know, it's 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 a, a rounding error of a rounding error for these guys. Yeah. And it does just show you how easy it is to to, to buy influence that shape these debates. Because as we talked about, you know, there's like, what, 15, 20 think tanks that really matter. And those think tanks help shape everything from foreign policy to how the media covers foreign policy. And, mm-hmm. and these, you know, these guys are now putting their thumb on the scale in a better direction. Um, but it does show you it's not a lot of money to have a lot of influence. Yeah. Uh, speaking of a Koch brother favorite, let's talk about Mike Pompeo. Mm. So the Munich Security Summit was this weekend. Uh, friend of the pod, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo <laughs> was there. Secretary of Defense, uh, what's his face? Mark Esper was there. Yeah. I know his name. It's just he's sort of useless. Um, so they were doing what has become this constant effort to to reassure our allies that we're still on their side, basically. Um, and, you know, I watched Pompeo's speech. I think it might have been effective, if not for how glaring the disconnect is between his rhetoric and Trump's words and deeds. So some notable lines and sentiments that jumped out at me include, he said, the death of the transatlantic alliance is vastly overstated. Ha ha ha. Lame joke. Uh, yeah. uh, the West is winning. We are winning. Freedom and democracy what are, we winning? are winning. Yeah. Do we get like a trophy? Or? Yeah. <laughs> Participation. Get a pardon? Um, we talked about how Asian countries like Vietnam are looking to the U.S. for leadership. No mention of the Philippines potentially ending a security agreement with the U.S. or like the constant anxiety out of Japan and South Korea. Or the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement that we dragged the Vietnamese into and then Trump pulled out of it. <laughs> yeah. Or the basing issues uh, or North Korea policy. Yeah. Um, 
Pompeo said, we don't interfere with other nations' elections, which I'm sure would be surprising to Israeli voters who have seen Trump intervene or attempt to influence in their elections three times in a year. Uh, he was a critical of assaults and sovereignty. He didn't mention that we're pursuing regime change in Iran. So Pompeo's big close was he talked about visiting a wounded Ukrainian service member in a hospital in Kiev. Yeah, that he, really rings uh, true. Yeah, yeah. It, it, surprisingly, he didn't mention uh, when Trump held up security assistance to that soldier for dirt on Joe Biden. The other big message that Pompeo and Esper took to the conference was that Western companies shouldn't let Huawei, which is a big Chinese telecommunications company, build out their 5G networks and infrastructure because of concerns that it could allow China to spy on them. We, they've been working on this for years. The Obama administration tried to stop people from using Huawei stuff. So far, the effort has totally failed. Uh, the UK let Huawei in. The Germans seem to be about to, in part because there's no real other options to build out your stuff. Um, the other notable thing that happened in Munich was the French president, Emmanuel Macron, is pushing to improve relations with Russia, which is causing some consternation. Ben, I assume you've been to these summits. Does anything important happen at the Munich Security Summit? Did anything <laughs> jump out at you from these speeches or you know happenings? I, I went to Munich last year. Uh, How was it? It, it was lively. Uh, it, was, it was like uh, lively for a German. Well, conference. you know, it, it was funny because it was like uh, I, you know, there's a guy who worked for me, a great guy named Graham Brookie, who now does really cool work uh, on disinformation mm -hmm. at the Atlantic Council, actually. And he was there as kind of the representative of millennials. Let's just say that the median age of the Munich Security Conference is, is not, it's up there. The know? crowd looked like 30 of Henry Kissinger's slightly younger brothers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but some friends of mine were there. Um, look, I, what they're mainly useful for, Munich is mainly useful for kind of taking the temperature of how people in the transatlantic alliance world feel about things. Um, and when I was there last year, it was, you know, desperation, doom and gloom. Nobody was buying the message that the Trump people were selling last year. And I can't imagine that they were this year. And, and, and you know, it's amazing that Pompeo even feels the need to say these things anymore. Like, does anybody really believe that the transatlantic alliance is going well, that, that the West is winning something? Um, and you made the right point, which is that put aside, like, what people say. Let's look at what they do. And, and what they're asked to do. So Mike Pompeo's big ask of Europe is to keep Huawei out. And they're like, well, screw you. You've imposed tariffs on us. You've ignored us. Mm -hmm. uh, you've thrown the Ukrainians under the bus to get dirt on the Bidens. So why would we do your bidding and do this really hard, if not impossible thing of you know, decoupling our telecommunications from Huawei? They're not going to do it. And that, that's the answer, right? So you don't even have to listen to what people say. It's like what people do. They're not doing what the Trump people are telling them to do uh, because of the way they've been treated by the Trump people and because they don't see the Trump administration as aligned with them on all of these issues. Uh, the Macron, you know, we had to spend a lot of time shoring up, you know, European support for sanctions on Russia over the invasion of Ukraine. It's not irrational for Macron to be like, why do I have to carry all the water in this conflict with Putin when Trump is like cozying up to him, right? Um, so this is what happens when the U.S. kind of absence itself from this this role, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, the, the interesting Munich Security Conference will be next year because either there'll be a new Democratic president, and I think that will be an important event. I remember in, in um, 2009, Joe Biden went to the Munich Security Conference like mm -hmm. a month after inauguration and kind of laid out all our priorities and everybody was super enthused about it and, and a lot of work started there um, or Trump will be reelected. And I think what you'll see next year is Europeans saying like, you know what, the transatlantic alliances is not 
not really applicable anymore that, that Europe is going to go its own yeah. way on some things and and that that is a lot yeah, of stuff. they'll send uh, Secretary of Defense Eric Trump over to make like <laughs> yeah. you know armpit farts for 15 minutes or how about Ivanka did you see Ivanka and her glammed out hijab I, I in uh, even, the UAE I can't you know? even deal with it yeah, it's just yeah. outrageous uh, all right some quick hitter headlines because there's so much news this week uh uh Afghanistan. So five months after the presidential elections in Afghanistan, uh, Afghan President Ashraf Ghani was finally declared the winner of that campaign, even though his opponent is saying it was fixed, it was rigged, and he says he's the winner too. This is a major political crisis. It's happening as the U.S. is apparently, reportedly, has approved a peace deal with the Taliban that would start with a seven-day period of reduced violence, followed by U.S. troop withdrawals, followed by direct negotiations between the Taliban and Afghan leaders. So it seems like they've reverse sequenced it. So the troops come out and then all the hard things happen. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm going to just be behind whatever it takes to get U.S. troops out. But uh, this could go bad. Yeah, I I, I have to say, I, I think that ultimately was the right call. Yeah, um, I think it had to happen. I mean, this idea that we were going to leverage the troop presence and insist on that, you know, is a recipe for just staying there forever. Um, the, what I think people need to recognize when you see anything about a quote-unquote peace deal is the real peace deal hasn't happened yet. It, the, the real peace deal is what Afghans negotiate amongst themselves, right? And so it's not whether the Taliban talks to us and we withdraw troops. It's whether the Taliban sits down with the Afghan government and figures out a way to end essentially a civil war in Afghanistan. Yeah. And so to your point, yeah, like we're going to draw down our troops, no surprise there. Frankly, it's, you know, Trump's doing this three years later than he said he would, uh, if he even follows through with it, because in the past we've seen these things kind of not, you know, he keeps saying he's removing troops in yeah. Afghanistan and there's still the same number of troops. He pretends to be mad about something. Yeah, you know, something, you know, and, and, and again, I think the the heavy lifting here will come in, can we get the Afghans to sit down with each other, Taliban, the Afghan government, can we get other countries to play a constructive role, um, you know, from Pakistan to China to India, um, you know, so that there's multilateral support for an end to the civil war. Um, and, you know, do we have some strategy diplomatically to help the Afghan people? So yeah. you're right, like, you know, positive development, but like the real work is really pushed push back. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we talked about a bit of this before, but some news on Iran. Uh, the White House finally sent a, an official report to Congress outlining the legal and policy rationale for the Soleimani assassination. And surprise, surprise, they have stopped declaring that Soleimani posed an imminent threat. So it's now official that all of those comments were lies. They've completely walked it back. They've done an the official record to Congress. Uh, but more hopefully, the Senate passed a resolution last week to limit Trump's ability to attack Iran militarily without first getting congressional approval. That measure passed 55 to 45 in a bipartisan manner. The House will likely pass some version of it next. Then Trump will undoubtedly veto it. But still, credit to Tim Kaine, yeah. credit to a bunch of Republicans for continually pushing this. Yeah. And, and I, I, I would say like the, it is just a pretty remarkable that we had the President of the United States, the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of Defense all lying to us flagrantly for days. Yeah. And, and I hope that the <laughs> the media takes a lesson from this finally because they parroted those lies. I mean, we, we talked about at the time that the headline in the New York Times, you know, Trump says, you know, imminent threat, subheadline, Pompeo says hundreds of Americans were at risk. A lot more people consumed those headlines than consumed the page 10 reports on this, like, post facto admission that they were lying. Mm -hmm. So they got everything they wanted out of the lies. You know, they, they got headline coverage that 
kind of parroted everything they said at the time. And, you know, a month later, our attention span can't stick to any one thing. And so, oh, yeah, this happened. Yeah. Um, that, that to me, you know, says you need to take everything these guys say with a grain of salt about everything, including matters of life and death. Yeah. A month later, uh, 109 service members have traumatic brain injuries from the strike and zero were uh, at risk of an imminent threat from Soleimani. Yeah. So the, the entire rationale was reversed. So, so let's we actually... endangered people. Well, let's step back at the whole thing, right? Because now we know that the, the strike that killed an American contractor that might have instigated uh, this latest chain of events, that might not even have been Iran. There's been a New York Times story yeah. saying that that could have been ISIS. So that might have been wrong. Then there's an assassination that they say is because of an imminent threat. That was wrong, right? Then Trump tweets all is well, and they come out and say nobody was hurt. Over 100 people have traumatic brain injury, right? That was wrong. Like everything in this was like a pyramid of lies, you know? that brought us to the brink of war. And, and as I've said, like, I don't think we've seen the end of the Iranian response to this, by the way. The, the Iranians played this out on their own timeline. Uh, and they've already resumed their nuclear program, right? So the counter-ISIS mission had to be suspended. So it's almost remarkable <laughs> that, that every piece of this story, like, has not held together. Yeah, and a bunch of idiots uh, sitting in green rooms or on TV sets or in Davos called it a win. Had tip to Ian Bremmer. Yeah, infuriating. Okay, last thing. So John Bolton, our buddy, former National Security Advisor, uh, did an event at Duke last night, and he's still complaining. Uh, some quick highlights. Uh, he said Trump's North Korea policy had been a wasted two years. Agree. Uh, he said that Trump's Iran strategy is failing. Um, he seemed to suggest that regime change in Iran would work better than Iraq because they're different, which is thoughtful and nuanced. Um, it's, a, it's an N instead of a Q. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then when he was asked about impeachment and Ukraine, he literally used it to tease his book that he hopes will get through the White House vet uh, and sell a whole bunch of copies so he can make money and complain about being censored by the White House. So, John Bolton, you suck. Yeah. I, you know, as a side note, he declared North Korea policy a failure, Iran policy a failure, and Venezuela policy a failure. So the three signature initiatives of Trump, which we revisit here, all failing. But yeah, I'd like to compare John Bolton to Vindman, right? Mm. Um, because, you know, you got one guy who sees something that he knows is wrong in Vindman, goes through all the proper channels to register his concern that this is wrong, testifies before Congress at great risk to his career and frankly ended up getting fired from his job at the White House because he said that that was the right thing to do in this country, right? It was a morally right thing. Vindman has not made a dollar off of this. No. Like, uh, he's put up with threats. Then this grifter, John Bolton, you know, if he really wanted to tell us so badly what happened in Ukraine, he's had every opportunity. Like, he could go on television. He could come on our podcast, you know, like... Uh, or we, impeachment we, hearings. We could bo book him next week. Yeah, happy yeah. to have you, John. Impeachment hearings, yeah. I mean, he said he would testify only to the Senate, not the House. He said that knowing probably that Mitch McConnell would make sure that never happened. Yep. He cashes out, somehow manages to write a book in like, you know, a couple months. <laughs> Can I read you uh, the exact quote? Uh, he said the leaks uh, about Ukraine to date were the sprinkles on an ice cream sundae compared to what's in the book. Like, he's yeah. so thirsty 
to get people to give a shit about what he says about this when and if he can charge you 32 bucks. Well, and it, it's it's not even subtle. Like, you know, you might as well have a pre-order button um, on his like Twitter account. Like the, the, he's just nakedly cashing in. And he's so cynical that he unfortunately knows that you know, it'll work. <laughs> you know? um, and, and again, I, I just think like we've got an election coming up in nine months that I truly believe is a referendum on whether we're going to have a democracy in this country, whether the rule of law applies, whether there's going to be an unhinged, unloosed Donald Trump never having to face voters again. You know, we've already seen how he did, uh, how he acted the week after impeachment. Can you imagine this man after re-election? No. These people who work for Trump know this. Um, the John Kellys and Jim Mattis's and Rex Tillerson's and Dina Powell's of the world, not to mention John Bolton. Tell us what you know. If, if you care about, you know, John Bolton likes to put himself forward as caring about democracy, even though I, you know, heatedly yeah, object to the way in which he does. But like, if, if he does, like, then you have a, like a, a civic obligation to do what Alexander Vindman did and just tell us what, what happened, you know? Uh, I think citizens need to be informed by what these Trump people know. And if they don't, then then the shame is on them. You know, yeah. that, that you know something that is of need to know basis to the American voter. But instead, you just, you know, you're going to take that information and monetize it to the best of your capacity. Yeah. It's gross. He sucks. Uh, one last thing before we go to the interview. I just saw a, a clip come through that said the State Department finally informed China that their five big news agencies, uh, including People Daily, China Daily, are now going to be treated as foreign government outlets, basically, and subject to the same rules as diplomats. So kind of nice that, uh, you know, future flacks like us won't have to treat these uh, these media organizations so, as anything but so state-run I, entities. I, I will say that I think this is a good move. Um, so I'm going to give credit to the Trump administration. Um, yeah, I kind of do too, to be honest. We, we debated this in the Obama administration and ultimately decided that we needed to set a good example for how you treat media and therefore would we credential them as media. My guess about these people is at best they are you know paid propagandists of the state. Like that's the, the best case of what they are. If not. But I suspect – they are reporting everything back to Chinese intelligence. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I don't know that. I'm not saying I like read intelligence. I'm, uh, but, you know, like they work for the government. Um, so, you know what? Like, and by the way, it's not like the, the Chinese revoke media, you know, visas and things for, for people who just report the news. The danger of this kind of move is whether the Chinese now reciprocate, which they very well may, and the Chinese may treat our journalists this way and we may lose some insight that we have from some of our reporters who were affected by that. So that's a real risk that you have to weigh. But I, I do think that, you know, pretending that like these outlets are anything other than, again, like at best propaganda, at worst, you know, spies. Chinese intelligence spies, yeah. like it, 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 we were, we we're like, you know, it was a fake yeah. dance. I, like I, I worry about the, the recriminations too or the yeah. possible retaliatory efforts. But yeah, I don't ever think you're in a good place as a government when you are pretending something is not what it is. You yeah. Know, that, that disconnect is just absurd. Yeah. And, 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 and again, uh, it's not like the Chinese were giving us credit for no. treating them like media. They were still messing with our reporters, still harassing our reporters, messing with their visas. Um, again, we'll see. Like the, you know, if if what we do is lose, like the New York Times bureau in Beijing or whatever, that that would be bad. That'd be um, really bad. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think we have to watch it. 
Uh, okay, uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to have Ben's interview about global efforts to stop climate change. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I'm now joined by Christiana Figueres, who was the former executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, which is a long way of saying she was the indispensable person at the UN in achieving the Paris Climate Accords. Um, I had the honor of of working a little bit with her uh, around Paris, um, and she's as smart as anybody uh, that you can talk to about about climate change. She's also the author of the upcoming book, The Future We Choose, um, which is about the efforts to end the climate crisis, or at least combat the climate crisis. That book is out February 25th, uh, and it's available for pre-order now, so people should uh, get online wherever you pre-order and, and look for The Future We Choose. Um, and she hosts the podcast Outrage and Optimism, so many hats. But thank you so much for joining us, Christiana. Well, thank you. Thank you, um, Ben. Thank you for plugging our book. Thank you for <laughs> yeah. plugging our um, podcast. Uh, thanks very much. And it, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. Um, but it's a particular honor to be on your podcast. Thanks. Yeah, no, I enjoyed being on yours. It's a great podcast. People should check it out. And I should mention Tom Karnak, a great guy, uh, worked with you on that book, too. Indeed. We are co-authors. We are also co-hosts together with Paul Dickinson on the uh, Outrage and Optimism podcast. So, yes, we do quite a bit of work together. Well, look, I want to start, Christiana. I understand you're literally just back from Antarctica, which most people can't say. Um, and the temperatures there were recently reaching, I think, you know, 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Um what, what is that like? What is it like to be in a place that is not supposed to be that hot? And, and how much did that kind of drive home for you, uh, just what we're dealing with here? Well, honestly, it's heartbreaking, right? It really is heartbreaking uh, to see a continent that is, of course, the whitest, uh, also the coldest, the windiest, the driest continent, uh, a completely unique ecosystem on our planet. It's just heartbreaking to see it under temperatures that you have in the tropics uh, on that day in which La Esperanza, the Argentinian research station, recorded 68 degrees Fahrenheit. It was almost the same temperatures in Hawaii. That is not normal. That is just not normal. Um, and we were, we were there for, uh, for 10 days. And on one day, it just rained solidly throughout the whole day. That's also not normal in Antarctica. It should be snowing. And the scientists who were with us were very, very concerned because they have never seen um, that amount of rain in Antarctica. And they did explain to us that actually rain is even more uh, detrimental to snow cover than the sun. And so they were, uh, they were really very concerned. In addition to the fact, of course, that's just what we 
experience when we are there on the ship. But of course, there are all kinds of consequences on the wildlife in Antarctica. Uh, there is no single species down there that is untouched. There's no single species that is now being forced to either adapt very, very quickly to warming conditions, to less ice conditions, um, or if they can't adapt quickly enough, then um, they will just uh, go into extinction. Um, and for me, one of the most heartbreaking, and can I tell you a little story, Ben? One, one, one of the most heartbreaking uh, examples that we saw were the orcas, uh, unfortunately called killer whales because neither are they whales nor are they as killer as we think. Um, they're actually dolphins, but they're spectacular animals. Um, and we saw, you know, on one day we saw a pod of 50 of them, maybe even more, um, which is typical for Antarctica, quite spectacular, except they were not white and black and gray. They were yellow. Why are they yellow? Because the warming, um, the warming ocean means that there is a phytoplankton that grows on their skin. And the only way to get rid of this is actually to swim all the way up South America to Brazil to warmer waters and clear their skin and then come back down. But these orcas, they need a certain strength, a certain body weight to be able to make that swim because once they start that journey, they don't stop to eat. They have to make it all in one swim. And many of them were just, many of them were just too thin to make the trip up. So they were yellow um, and getting, we saw a whole pod getting more and more yellow, which means are we now, you know, threatening even orcas, which is a, a species that, um, that we hadn't thought was under extinction? It is very, very concerning. Yeah. And when you're there and, and you're, you know, experiencing those temperatures um, and, and talking to the scientists, is that a sign that, that things might be, you know, worse than, than even some of the models predict, like that, that essentially... Uh, you know, in terms of the, the, the forecast of where this is headed, that, that we might be in, in a deeper hole than we even thought? Well, I think that is actually the trend that we see, right? Every time that we yeah. see a new scientific report, the scientists tell us, actually, we underestimated the impact. Actually, we underestimated the speed with which these changes are occurring. Actually, we underestimated the intensity with which and the frequency with which we're seeing these disasters. And every single report, that is the conclusion of scientists. So what we have to understand is that climate change at this point is no longer on a linear trajectory. It is on an exponential trajectory. Um, and that is that is the concern. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about how, what to do about that. I mean, first, we'll, we'll go to the past and, and, and you know, the, one of the pieces of good news that we've had in recent years. But, you know, the Paris Agreement, um, you know, succeeded where past efforts had, had failed, including, uh, you know, I was at Copenhagen in 2009 when, when that kind of unraveled. And you survived. Yeah, yeah, I survived. It was a chaotic scene. Barely. We're both survivors, Copenhagen survivors. I, you know, there, there are a lot of Copenhagen stories. Uh, I, my, our office was in like a store uh, in like a mall area. Um, but that's a whole other story. Um, 
But uh, I do remember you playing this incredible role because Paris was a different kind of agreement than had kind of ever existed in the sense that every single country had to be a part of it. Each country had to do something different, right? So, so each country had a different emissions target in terms of emissions reductions. Some countries had to pay into, obviously, a fund to help uh, the poor countries uh, develop with cleaner energy. Um, there was you know, a, a system set up to monitor and have transparency around whether nations are meeting their commitments. There was an effort to bring in you know, non-governmental actors. Um, wh- wh- why do you think Paris did succeed? You know, what, what, wh- what was it about that agreement that allowed the whole world to come into it? Um, and, and, and is there a lesson we can take from that about how to, to mobilize collective action going forward? There are many lessons that we can learn from Copenhagen. And actually, um, the, one of the first things that I did when I took over the, um, the, the guidance of the Climate Convention was do a very, very detailed analysis of the strengths and weaknesses, the mistakes and the, and the positive things out of Copenhagen. And it was a big, fat 300-page book um, that turned out to be our Bible because, you know, when, when I, I always call Copenhagen the most successful failure of the United Nations. Um, and it was a failure because we all concluded that it was a failure, but it was successful because we learned so much from it. And m- much, certainly many of the procedures that we then put in place, the processes that we put in place, and the logic and the structure of the Paris Agreement is very, very different from uh, from from the Kyoto Protocol um, because we learned from Copenhagen what we should not do and what is actually a much more realistic and also ambitious goal to set when you have to get 195 countries to agree to something. And that that's not, you know, you shouldn't underestimate that because we had actually reached way before Paris, we had reached the conclusion that it would not be enough to just have consensus on the global framework, but that we would actually have to reach it beyond consensus by actually having every single country agree to it. Unanimity, political unanimity, is much more difficult to attain than consensus. So, you know, it was, uh, it was, was quite, a, uh, quite a task, but we knew that this was so important and that whatever the new trajectory of the global economy being set by all of these countries together, it would affect every single country. So, Logic tells you if it affects every single country, every single country has to agree to that structure and to that path. So a couple of things that I think are worth um, highlighting um, that we turned around in Paris. The, the first that I think is worth highlighting is no country was forced to do anything. This was not a top-down process. This was a bottom-up process. Yes, we knew what science demands. Yes, we knew that we had, as a global economy, together, all of us need to reach a net zero um, emissions level by 2050. But contrary to what was there before, the previous legal instrument of the convention, which is the Kyoto Protocol, there was no emission reduction level that was actually um, the result of a negotiation among country among countries, which I would call a top-down uh, approach. It was very much bottom-up. 
we understood that the emission reductions were so dramatic that there was no way that we could pit the interests, even if short-term, of a country against the long-term interests of the planet. And we understood that the only way forward would be to have the conversations with all sectors within each government, each country, that would allow us to identify where was the overlap? What is the nexus between self-interest self-economic interest, self-political, social interest, and the global need. Because it's only if you identify that sweet spot that you can actually have a very clear movement forward and a very clear impetus. Self-interest, Ben, honestly, for us for as people or as societies or as cities, communities, countries, is the most powerful motivating force. There is no lever that is as powerful as self-interest. So what we did under the Paris Agreement was we did not deny self-interest. We actually encouraged every country, go home, do your homework, figure out what you want in your vision of the development of your country and where does that overlap with the planetary needs. And every country came forward with their own contribution. And that is the basket of what is called the nationally determined contributions, because that's what they were. They were nationally determined. So, you know, some people in the White House have said that the United States was forced into a situation that they didn't want to and that someone imposed upon them. Absolutely not true. Every single country came forward with its own nationally determined contribution. Now, the trick with that, of course, is that the sum total of all of that does not lead us to what science demands and what the planet needs for security, safety, and stability. So, what we then did was, okay, we will not have all those nationally determined contributions add up to the final result in one fell swoop, we will extend the time. And so what the Paris Agreement does is it invites every country to determine what they're going to do to contribute as a starting point, only as a starting point. And so that's the starting line. Every country starts at a different point, but everybody puts one or two or three feet forward. And everybody agrees to what the end the finishing line is, and that is net zero emissions by 2050. So that you have a process that will be checked every five years. And this year, and I hope we talk about Glasgow, um, because this year is five years since Paris. And so it's the first time that that five yearly cycle will be checked. So basically, you know, we're all in this process together. It's going to be a multi-decadal process that is already established in Paris. We know where we have to get to, where science demands in order to keep us safe. Um, But we realize that this is not going to be delivered in one year or two years, but rather that it is going to be a process of increasing decarbonization. That's a very different logic to what we had before. Yeah, no, and it's a great explanation. And, and you know, just to give the listeners a sense of this, right, it, you know, each country makes its own uh, target in terms of reducing emissions. And you can get more ambitious based on the actions you're taking. So even before Paris, in his second term, President Obama 
did a whole bunch of stuff, you know, to improve fuel efficiency standards, to address, you know, coal-fired power plants. And because of the steps we took, we could put forward a more ambitious climate target than we could have a few years earlier. In an alternative world, you know, if, if President Obama had another five years, presumably we would have been raising our ambition, doing more things so that five years after Paris, we could come forward and say, actually, you know what, we can get more ambitious, you know, because of the steps we've taken, we can do more to reach that net zero goal in 2050. And that brings me to, to COP26, as you mentioned. So uh, the idea that, that you and others, you know, put together that is so good is that there's this kind of accountability and convening that takes place on a regular basis. And the hope would be that five years after Paris, everybody comes together and you can raise the ambition from where it started, from that starting line of Paris. And so that's going to happen in Glasgow in November of this year. What is your expectation for COP26, for this conference? If you're watching this from the outside, what would show that we're making progress and, and what might be warning signs that we're not doing everything we can uh, heading into COP26? Well, you know, ironically, um, Ben, all of these conferences keep on co being called negotiations, but the irony is there's nothing to be negotiated yeah, yeah. at the end of this year, right? Uh, we have a path that everyone has agreed to, and we're not negotiating with each other anymore. We're, we are in the process of, as you say, of an increasing accountability about how we're doing with respect to what we've already agreed to. So there's no negotiations that need to take place. In Glasgow, what will happen is that every country will come forward forward and will have reviewed what they put in, what they registered under Paris, and they will compare that with advancing technology because technologies have advanced hugely in the past five years, certainly all the renewables, certainly carbon capture and storage, certainly hydrogen. So all of the solution technologies, let's say, have advanced incredibly. So first, we will look at how much has technology already contributed. Secondly, we will take a look at what policies are being put in place in countries that accelerate the dissemination and the uptake of those technologies. And third, these countries should also be looking at shifting capital. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I hope for your listeners it didn't go un, uh, unnoticed that Larry Fink just came out as being the largest asset manager in the world already with $7 trillion is what Black rock manages, um, he just came out with his yearly letter saying, okay, you know, I have finally understood, sorry, I'm, this is not a direct quote. <laughs> this is my interpretation yeah, yeah. of what Larry <laughs> yeah, said. Yeah. Um, Larry has finally understood, and it's honestly, it's been a while because there are many asset managers and asset owners that have been ahead of him. But he finally came out to say, right, I have understood that investing in high carbon assets is hugely risky. I have understood that we need to get out of coal, and I have understood that we need to be moving our investments over to the new economy, to clean technologies. Well, that's a huge message to the entire capital market. In addition to that, we now have uh, a group of asset owners beyond the asset managers, asset owners who, from my perspective, are basically at the top of the financial food chain, uh, who in total uh, can bring their assets that they own to $5 trillion, who have now understood that it is in their financial interest. They're not doing this to save the planet, right? Fortunately, there is a coincidence here of, of interest. 
interests, a total alignment of interests. They have understood that moving their um, investment portfolio over to a portfolio that is zero net, certainly by 2050, if not before, is actually protective of the assets that they own. And so they are encouraging their companies to move over as quickly as possible. That, that just to give you two examples from asset manager and asset owner perspective of how the financial markets are actually also aligning themselves. So once you have technology, policy, and finance coming together to help the acceleration of decarbonization, now I get back to the exponential piece, Ben, that I talked about before. Because climate change is definitely on an exponential curve of damage, but solutions are also on an exponential curve of, uh, of impact, of positive impact. And honestly, I think when you step back and you look at this, you say, okay, which of these two exponential curves is actually going to win? There is a race here, a race between climate, negative climate impacts and positive climate solutions. The two are racing against each other and we know which one has to win. So it's you know the, to get to net zero, uh, basically you know everybody's going to have to get more ambitious, right? Government policies, as you yep. said, follow the money. You know where investments are going. Um, I, I want to talk about a couple other pieces of this puzzle. Um, then there's kind of private individuals' investments. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos just announced a ten billion dollar, you know, commitment essentially to make grants uh, to to fight climate change. I mean, what, how important is that, and 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 what is the role of of private individuals in helping to fund some of these efforts? Well, I think his announcement is very interesting because it complements a previous announcement that he had made, um, which is that um, he had already, as Amazon, um, announced that Amazon would be carbon neutral or net zero by 2040, which is 10 years before the Paris Agreement stipulates zero net. So that's very interesting because you now have a growing number of large companies that have understood that they can do better than the Paris Agreement. Microsoft then, of course, jumped up and said, what? Amazon is doing it by 2040. We will do it by 2030. Um, and so now you're beginning to see the race to the top. Corporations that have understood that they actually do have the technology, they do have the finance to protect themselves quicker and afford themselves a much safer um, business continuity scenario. So that's on the corporate side. And we can also talk about recent announcements of oil and gas, Ben, that are quite exciting. Um, but then, in addition to that, then Bezos comes out and he says, in addition to what Amazon is doing as a company, now I, from my personal, um, for my personal, uh, war chest will, uh, will donate, uh, to climate solutions. Very interesting that he has recognized that there is a very important role for corporates to, uh, to reduce emissions, not just of their own company, but throughout the whole value chain, but that there's also a role for philanthropy. And, um, and the role for philanthropy is pretty clear because there are some areas um, that are not quite ripe for our traditional investment that still need de-risking. Uh, 
And that's where philanthropy should come in to de-risk some sectors and some areas and some activities that are still uh, a little bit too risky for the capital markets, but that if you just de-risk them a little bit can actually attract the kind of um, financing that is available now. So it's very interesting to see him play both sides of the solution space in order to accelerate. So, and, you know, de-risking, uh, you know, basically allows people to invest in things that, you know, might not have a guarantee of success and might not attract private investment, but, but philanthropy can fill that gap. Um, then there's obviously the hugely important aspect of government policy. You know, we have a president and, and Donald Trump who's both pulled out of Paris and really reversed a lot of uh, Barack Obama's climate regulations, although state and local governments have tried to keep them in place and Frankly, the automakers are still abiding by you know uh, higher fuel fuel efficiency standards than even Trump would want them to. But if you look at the the, the current campaign, where the Democrats have largely put out pretty am- ambitious climate uh, programs, particularly with respect to domestic uh, efforts, I-, I wanted to get your sense of what you make of the climate plans that you've seen to date, and you know, do you think that those efforts? Uh, are sufficient and, and how might they be coupled with international climate policies that could try to bring other countries uh, along and in, in getting more ambitious? Well, I, I think the first thing to be said here, Ben, is, oh my goodness, what a massive difference to where we were four years ago, where we were four years ago, where during that presidential campaign, Climate was barely alluded to and, you know, almost in an apologetic way because the sense was uh, it, it is it, it just will not win any votes. And now you have this massive shift, honestly, that was started by Jay Inslee, I must say, although he's now no longer in the in the race. But he was the first one to recognize that there is a sizable portion of U.S. citizens who are increasingly concerned and who do want solutions on the table. And he put forward his platform. His entire platform was organized around uh, around climate change. What that actually did was invite slash nudge every single one of the other Democratic con- uh, candidates to also adopt a responsible climate change plan platform. And it is a massive difference, right? They're all aligned. The differences between them is sort of emphasis here or there in the way that they would go about it. But they are all aligned toward zero net emissions by 2050 for the United States for many different reasons, right? For competitive reasons, it is just pathetic. If It would be pathetic, let me say, because I don't think we're there yet. But under President Trump, we're very quickly moving into the direction of letting U.S. industry become uncompetitive in uh, low emission and um, and and in, in low emission technologies that are in very quickly in rising demand for those technologies because young people for sure want products and services that are not high carbon. Um, So competitiveness is one of the first reasons why the industry in the United States, despite whatever the White House is doing or not doing, continue to decarbonize. There is also the national security issue, and we have heard that from 
almost all candidates that there is a national security component. There's a public health component here. There's a jobs component. There's an economic growth component. I mean, it, it is really quite remarkable, the plethora of, uh, of arguments to decarbonize um, the society. And, um, and what I think, in, in addition to the massive change that now climate is in every single democratic um, candidate platform. The other big difference from five, uh, f- uh, four years ago is that the arguments that are being given are actually all positive arguments. Climate change has now, climate change is certainly a threat, but addressing climate change is being increasingly understood as an opportunity. That is the major conceptual shift that has finally occurred in the United States, but also in many other countries, that we have moved from a burden to an opportunity. What is sad, then, is that this is only on one side of the political spectrum in the United States. And it shouldn't be, right? Because competitiveness should not be a partisan issue. Public health should not be a partisan issue. Um, National security should certainly not be a partisan issue. Um, That's really sad. And it doesn't need to be like that in the UK where I used to live. It's not a partisan issue. And you have all parties uh, supporting with very small differences, supporting uh, decarbonization. And honestly, that is a much more, I dare say, a much more mature understanding of what is ahead of us. Well, look, Christiana, that's a great uh, note to end on. Thank you so much for, for joining us. And I encourage everybody to check out your upcoming book, The Future We Choose, uh, again, available for pre-order now. Uh, and we will uh, we'll be looking uh, at Glasgow later this year, just as uh, I know many of us in our country will be looking at our, at our election as well. So thanks for joining us. And Ben, can I just say, on Friday, this Friday, the 25th, yep. we release on our podcast a fascinating interview with John Kerry. Okay, on this good, topic. Yeah. So also something to look forward to. Yeah, everybody should check that out as well. Um, so thanks a lot and good luck with the, uh, the book tour. Thank you, Ben. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Enjoy the uh, Nevada caucuses. It should be hopefully better than the Iowa caucus results. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you we'll went, see. You went from like Iowa stand to Listen, uh, everything, reformer. every moment I spent in Iowa up and until the caucuses ended was fantastic and wonderful. The yeah. guy who ran the caucus we were at did an incredible job. He was conscientious, thoughtful, great, smart, funny. The counting part was bad. But then the, the problem was the counting and the app problems yeah. and all the other stuff led to a broader effort to sort of dig into these results where we realized how many mistakes were underneath that first layer of yeah, mistakes yeah. that really called into yeah. question the No, it's just maybe results. it just reached uh, that question. I will say, Tommy, because there's a Nigerian nexus, I'm surprised we didn't discuss the Liz Smith uh, sock puppet Twitter account. For, for uh, those listening maybe, at home, a bunch of <laughs> fucking idiots on Twitter spent their day on Saturday or Sunday deciding or accusing Liz Smith, who is a flack for the Buttigieg campaign, of running a sock puppet of a fake Twitter account out of Nigeria without ever pausing to think to themselves, what is the value of this <laughs> yeah, yeah. to her? Yeah, yeah. Why would she want to do this? But you, you had people losing their fucking minds. I, you know, Blue checkmark journalists. We this, supposedly yeah. serious people. We had this text chain, right? Yumi and, and John and Dan and Cody. Cody. And every now and then I'll look down and I'll be like, 47 messages, right? So I'm catching up and it's all about this. I'm like, what? This can't be that crazy. And I open Twitter and within like 
nine seconds of opening Twitter, I'm like, how have these people just lost their minds? Like, yeah, I, I was like in New York running around doing stuff and I would check in on that. I, just, I literally couldn't believe yeah. the accusations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like there's just the invective, like people were threatening violence if you disagree with them that their <laughs> yeah. little theory was wrong. Well, Everyone, log off. Everybody's got to chill out a little bit. Yeah. All right, talk All right, to you guys next thanks, week. Says. Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nara Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.